0: Nehemiah is the story of God keeping His promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through His people for the flourishing both spiritually, through ordering their lives around His Word, and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, And the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people. So that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city.
1: Kids ages uh, 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. Um, You can head in the back. If not, that's fine. We love kids here, which should be obvious because there's millions of them. (sighs) used to be a joke that when you come into Holy Cross, you get one free baby on your way out. Um, That may still be true. if uh, They may not be babies, but it may still be true if my kids misbehave. Uh, you can have one of them. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it to Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah's in the old Testament. Um, about midway through your Bible is the book of Psalms. Keep heading to the left. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to hit Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. The text is for you in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible and, and look, not everyone in this room does. There are a bunch of them on the back table in a little basket. We've got more under that back table. I know it's a little awkward and you're thinking like, I ain't getting up right now. But before you leave here, grab one of those. That's our gift to you. Take that. that we, we think having God's word is important. So that's our gift to you as you head out. Be sure you grab one. All right? Uh, however you have it in front of you, though, it's going to be good to have the, the passage in front of you as we walk through it so you know I'm not just making this stuff up. Because that's not going to help anybody. Right? So if you're new to Holy Cross, many of you are. One of the ways that we often speak is in terms of this thing we call brokenness. Uh, brokenness is uh, one way of talking about the problems that we see in ourselves. Those problems we can't seem to fix. The problems that are constantly in front of us. And not just in us, but in the systems around us. We are all broken. I think most of us see that, right? That kind of fits with that kind of millennial, postmodern era. We're, we're all broken. And now we're a Christian church, which means that we have a particular understanding of why we're broken. Why our community is broken. But the fact that we're broken isn't necessarily in dispute. And that's why this book is so important. That's why it's so poignant to us today. Because uh, Nehemiah is all about a broken people and a broken city. And it's about God's faithfulness in the midst of our brokenness to bring renewal. Renewal not based on anyone's supposed goodness. Because it was their supposed goodness that got them into the problem in the first place. But renewal based on, uh, on... someone else's goodness, the goodness of God, not based on some kind of, some excellent leader or financial resources, but based on the leadership and providence of God. But what is this brokenness and why is it here? So we come in, the, this first message in the series, that's the, the, the question we need to take the, to the text this morning. So if you have your place in Nehemiah chapter 1, our, our habit here is to stand as, uh, in honor of God's word, as the word is read before the sermon. Let us be mindful of this. This is God's word. It is not something that we chose for us. As Christians, we believe that it's God's word that lays claim on us. And even something written 2,400 years ago speaks living words to us now. So hear him in this way. This is God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the months of Kislev in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jer- Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire, This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we are in this room from a lot of different walks, a lot of different places. We're bringing lots of different stories into this room. Some of us, uh, we, we are um, long-time goers to church. Some of us are here for the first time walking into a place where people do crazy things like sing together. We've never seen such things, and it's weird and bizarre to us. And many of us are somewhere in between. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us where we are. For you, Lord Jesus, came to walk amongst us. We ask that by your spirit you might continue to do that, to meet us where we are and bring about faith. Lord, preach your gospel to us this morning. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, for we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So one of the things that the new 24, and, and I say new because because uh, I'm a child of the 80s and it wasn't present then, but one of the, the, the things this 24-hour news cycle has created for us is more visibility the issues of the world, right? When you see refugees fleeing Syria with nowhere to go, or the warehouses that ISIS has created to... Abuse and use girls who are trafficked or kidnapped or ethnic cleansing in multiple places throughout the world. It kind of keeps your eyes off the stuff around you at home, doesn't it? Until it doesn't. I mean, these things that we see around us may seem less extreme, and some are, but they're no less broken. Let me give you some examples. Uh, People places. Maybe you're familiar with that. That's an organization here in town that that uh, is kind of the primary foster adoption kind of agency in our in our city. They said they receive 200 requests for foster homes each year. 200. It's not quite one a day. Things like the fact that cycles of poverty that surround teen pregnancy are on the rise here in Stanton, that only half of teen moms will receive high school diploma by the age of 22, and a quarter of them have a second child within 24 months of their first, which further reduces that number. Or how about the fact that three-quarters of the kids at one of our elementary school, over three-quarters in fact, are, on, are, are eligible for free and reduced lunch, which means that um, they, they reach a certain level according to the, the federal guidelines for poverty, which has an unfortunate correlation to future academic achievement. None of those reasons having anything to do with them. These aren't things that we want to think about, right? Most of us in this room kind of, you know, we, we, most of us at least, we're, you know, we, we like the middle class niceties, we keep those things off. Those are, those are distant. For others of us, though, they are day-to-day realities in our lives. Friends, we live in a broken city, but God's Word speaks to this, and not in the overly simplistic ways of our political discourse, where we either blame the system or the person. Nehemiah, like all of Scripture, shows us that the need is much deeper, and so this morning we're going to look at this passage in three ways. Uh, at Holy Cross, there's an outline in your bulletin, if if you're If that would help you to follow along, great, take that out, use it. If not, leave it where it is. But we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at the source of the need, we're going to look at stating the need, and then we're going to look at seeking renewal. Okay, The source of the need, stating the need, and then seeking renewal. Now, as we get into this source of the need, we really need to catch up on this book, right? I mean, even if you've been a Christian a long time, I doubt you've been spending a whole lot of time in your morning reading of the Bible in Nehemiah right? Psalms, yes, maybe a little Pauline letters. If you're like into that stuff, you do a little revelation because it's woo, but Nehemiah, like what? Yeah, I know, but this is actually a really important part of the biblical story, but to get there, we need a little review, so stay with me, okay? We're going to go through a little history. Stick with me. It's really important, okay? So the Bible tells the story that humanity was created to be in a dependent relationship with God. That we were created by him to, to, to find our identity, our worth, our understanding of reality, our very life in him. In him. But in time, we believed a lie. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've thought it. That God didn't love us. That he wasn't really for us. That he's out to use us, in fact, and hold us back. That, that, in fact, we could be independent from him if we simply turned away. And so we did that. We betrayed God, which the Bible calls sin. It's, it's a relational betrayal. We, most of us think of sin, that, that 3 little word, as like the breaking of rules. But it's not necessarily the breaking of rules, so much as the breaking of a relationship. We broke relationship with God. And when we did that, a few things happened. First and foremost, we became guilty of that betrayal. And I know, look, both of us know, you and I both know, we don't like that idea. We don't, we, we've been taught and our culture has taught us that any feelings of guilt are residual kind of effects of either, of, of either parental over-involvement or someone's will to power, right, to, to force us to move in a given direction. Uh, but you know, you know that all betrayal brings guilt, right? Because you've been betrayed. And so have I. You've done the betraying so have I. So it brings guilt. It also brings, it, it brings alienation. We were alienated from the God that we were made for. And, and finally, we became broken. What I mean by that is that the Bible tells us what our normal experience is. Like It, it confirms that. We know that, that, that we're broken, and the Bible says that's true. What it means by that is that our natures were changed. That we're not neutral beings. But that by, by now, by nature, we're turned away from God. We no longer have to be convinced of the lie that God doesn't love us, that he's trying to use us, that he's out to get us. It's our presupposition, right? But God promised to fix things. He promised to make things right. Note what I just said. He promised to make things right, not forcing us to make them right. And in time, he chose this dude named Abraham, who was worshiping false gods in the city of we heard about him in our, in our uh, reading this morning. He drew Abraham to himself. He told him that it's through his family that the world's going to be rescued. But here's the problem. Abraham, like you and me, he was pretty jacked up. And his whole family was, too. And I mean royally so. Like, the dude pimped off his wife to a king to save his own skin. Like, that's, that's the, this, is, this is who he was, And his family was about the same. Like they they had God's word. They knew what it looked like to walk with God, what it looked like to worship him. They they had their theology right, what it was to be human as we were made to be, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep it. But God stayed true. And God set over them a king by the name of David around one thousand BC. Jackson, you want to pop up that timeline for us so that we can we can see it? There you go. If you can see that, great. If not, sorry. But he popped a, a God set over king over them by the name of David around 1000 BC. Some of you know the, at least the story of David and Goliath. Uh, little guy, sling, you know, big giant in the forehead. So David, <laughs> David was pretty messed up too. And one of the things that I love about the Bible as, and that's different from all other uh, kind of religious texts is that the Bible doesn't try and paint a nice little sheen on its heroes. It's just really honest, right? Really honest. Something that you're not going to see. Uh, you're not going to see um, the, 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 the Quran speak about Muhammad's foibles. You're not going to see uh, Buddhist texts speak about where Buddha messed up. But in the Bible, like, the way we mess up is all over the place. Its heroes are just like you and me. And David's grandson, Rehoboam, splits the kingdom. He splits the kingdom. Now, David had a son, his name was Solomon, really wise, had lots of gold, and then he had a son named Rehoboam. He splits the kingdom because, well, he was a tool, uh, but, but he, he splits the kingdom, and that's in the Bible, by the way, you can find that. Um, and so now you've got Israel in the north, you've got two kings, you've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel, the northern kingdom, abandons God from day one, and even after tons of warning, refuses to turn back to him. So in 722 BC, 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, comes down, scoops up them as a people, and takes them away, and they're never heard from again. Judah, the southern kingdom, they've got some good times and bad times, but things keep getting worse. I mean, they've got the rules, they've got the right rules. God gave them the rules, right? So they've got the right rules, they've, they've got the right worship, they've got their theology straight, but they can't change their hearts. And so things consistently get worse. They keep turning away until Babylon, which was another empire that rose up, dispatched Assyria in 605 BC. Babylon comes down, comes knocking on Judah's door, and in 586 carries Judah off into exile. But even as God's people are being pulled into exile, prophets like the one like uh, Jeremiah are are telling them, "Don't worry, God's not done. God's not finished. This this is all still part of the plan. God's using this to call you to restore him, to restore you to himself." So Babylon gets conquered by the Persians in 539. You see a a pattern here? Like, empires come, they go. Uh, So the Persians conquer Babylon in 539. And the Persians have a different domestic policy as an empire. They take conquered peoples and they tell them, you can go live where you want. The Babylonians were so mean. They they were mean people. Go back to your homelands. And so the Jews begin returning immediately under the leadership of a dude named Zerubbabel. I don't expect to find that in any baby name books anytime soon. This is a rubble. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, so they, they get to go home. So, of course, now all of God's promises are going to be true, right? Everything's going to be great. He's going to forgive their sin. He's going to remove it from them. He's finally going to make things right. But you see, their problem, our problem, isn't geography. And their problem and our problem isn't having whether or not you have the right rules or the right leader goes deeper. And so even though the temple is rebuilt in 515 BC, things are still not right. And so that brings us up to Nehemiah. That brings us uh, to our book and a people in need. Okay, So Nehemiah is an official in the court of the Persian king, probably Artaxerxes, and, and our text says this in verses 1 through 2. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, as it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Okay, Here's what's going on. Kislev is a month in the Jewish calendar, late, late November, early December. Okay, Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire it's in southwest Iran, currently. Um, and, And the year is around 444 B.C., okay, about 2,400 years ago. So think back. We are talking nearly 100 years after the Jews were given leave to return to their homeland. 100 years later, that's a lot of time, right? So everything's going to be great. I mean, you've got a new administration. You've got a new governing philosophy. Everything's going to be good. I mean, that's what we always think, isn't it? In fact, this is what most of our answers are. Just get a different person in office. Get the right person. Get our guy or girl, woman. Get our person in office. Just change the rules you keep. Just get a change of scenery. But you see, even how Nehemiah framed the question is important. He asked about those who survived the exile. If you were Jewish during this time period, you wouldn't have heard the word exile and heard an issue of geography. You would hear an issue of the heart. Because back a little further to the left in your Bible, a book called Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible, okay? Deuteronomy, uh, tell, God tells his people in that book about what it will look like to walk with him. And then in chapter 28, he gives a list of consequences. Here's what happens when you don't walk with me, when you turn away from me, when, when things are go bad. And, and the last and greatest of these consequences was exile. So Nehemiah's question, how are the Jews who survived? How how my, how's my family? Nehemiah's question is, how are we doing? Is the exile over? Have things returned to normal? And the answer he gets shakes him to the core. So let's look at it. Let's look at stating the need. And, and first, with the renewal of a community, look down at verse 3. Hananiah says this to him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we don't live in a world where there are tons of walls, right? We don't live in cities surrounded by walls. We don't need them. We are supposedly governed by laws. <laughs> and so we don't, we don't need such things. But let me explain about a little about what walls and the gates of a city meant in the ancient Near East. First and foremost, and this makes sense, this is, duh, walls are protective, right? Walls keep bad guys out. They, they keep things okay. Without your walls, a city was open to marauders and outlaws of various stripes. But walls also provided an identity. They provided a source of pride. This is my city. This is what marks out my city from the country folk out there, right? This is our city. So it's an identity marker. Gates were far more than big doors. The city gates in the ancient Near East were the place of um, governance. It's where the, the people who ruled the city, they would go sit at the city gates. Why? I don't know. Apparently better air conditioning or something. They'd sit at the city gates to do their ruling. It was also the place where economic things happened. The merchants would set up right there in the area. And, and of course, obviously, gates provide safety. And so they would be closed at night so that people felt safe in their homes. So here's the thing. To have a city with no gates and a city with no walls meant a city where people could not flourish. There's no possible way. There's no hope for their safety. There's no hope for their governance. There's no hope for their provision. They can't have an economy. And so if there are people living in Jerusalem at this time, they are living in an urban desert. One scholar puts it this way. Reducing a wall to rubble symbolized the breaking of the bonds of community. The community has been destroyed. And even a hundred years later, it's still destroyed. This community is in need of a place where they can flourish. But more is said, because he also notes the people. He talks about the renewal of a people. Look again there. He says, the remnant who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Okay? This is important, so listen close. Because you see, it's easy for us to think, well... Walls broken, gates burned down. I got an easy fix. Build the wall, put the gate back on, right? I mean, that, we think, okay, no problem. We just fix the wall. That's, that's easy, right? Because that's, that's what middle-class America focuses on. I got an answer. Make the structure better. Make the structure better. Everything is better, right? But listen, remember what we said. Why was the wall of Jerusalem broken down in the first place? It's broken down in the first place because of sin. Because because of exile. And that's why Hanani says that these people are stuck in trouble and shame. The wall isn't right because the people aren't right. The gate is broken down because the people are broken down. The most famous promise from God about the exile coming to an end is found in the book of Jeremiah, where God says that he's going to make a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah 31. It's beautiful. 31-31. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. I'm going to to give them new hearts. I'm going to forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. But this has not happened. God's people, they're still in exile. Their exile continues. But remember, exile was not the arbitrary act of a petulant deity. It was the last-ditch effort to get the attention of his people. It's the last-ditch effort to get the attention of people who were in a promise-bound relationship with God. Because, you see, the Bible is very clear that we were made for God, made to flourish in relationship with God, and in all of these structures that we look to, all of the just, good, merciful structures... We're meant to line up under that. So here we have a people still alienated from God, and that is being lived out in structures that have failed. Like I said, the walls of Jerusalem are torn down because the walls in these people's hearts are torn down. The community has disintegrated because the relationships of people with God have disintegrated. And so the problem goes much deeper than bricks and mortar. Something needs to be done, not just with walls and gates, but with hearts. With sin and with shame. But so what, right? <laughs> like I said this is an account of like 2,400 years ago. Big deal. What could this possibly have to do with us? Well, let me help us see uh, that a little bit, because you see our situation is not unlike the account of Jerusalem, though perhaps less dramatic. So we seek renewal. Let's talk about renewing the source. We live in a society, believe it or not, without walls. Now look, what I mean by that is not rules. We have plenty of rules. <laughs> uh, but when we hear stats like those I told at the beginning, and our indignation rises up, and it does, doesn't it? I mean, we're not heartless. You hear things like kids who don't have a chance to succeed. Just, the deck is just stacked against them. And how uh, all of these things, kind of these marginalizing factors in our city, we, our hearts rise up. We see the brokenness around us and we want it to change. But the problem is, is that we immediately run to structures and systems. But, friends, our community is broken because we are broken. Even if we had the best structures and systems in the world, they're still going to be run, maintained, and managed by broken people who are going to mess up, get things wrong, use power unwisely for their own benefit have unintended consequences of very good intentions. Think back to the story of God's people. Here's a group of people who got the rules from God himself. They got their structures from God himself. What What if God showed up and said, Hey, you want welfare reform? I got it for you. Here it is. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you care for the poor. Here's how you maintain uh, justice in your society. Here's how you take care of the poor and marginalized. Here's how you do debt relief. Realize the Bible even gives a plan for debt relief in the Old Testament. Got it all. But none of it worked. And none of it worked because our problem, friends, is not that we don't have the right rules. We don't need better rules. We need a better ruler. We don't need reforming. We need rescue. The Bible tells us that the world is broken because we are broken, but it also tells us that God promised to see both renewed, and that is why Jesus came. The great difference, and I was a world religions uh, major in college, so trust me when I tell you this, the great difference between Christianity and every other religion is that every other world system gives you a to-do list. Here's the steps to, to follow. Here are the pillars that you have to do. Here's the, the path that you've got to run down. Do these things. Be tolerant towards everyone, but intolerant people, and, and everything's going to be okay. But Christianity doesn't do that. I know we're confused and you're like, what? Yes, it does. You just said God gave these rules. No. Christianity doesn't offer a to-do list. Christianity offers you a done list. It isn't a set of steps to get back to God. It's a story of how God came to get back to you, and here's why that matters. The Bible says that our problem—listen close—our problem is our hearts. That our hearts are bent towards independence from God. If our problem is behavior, no, that—that's not an issue, right? Most of us in this room, we're really good with changing our behaviors, at least for a few months, right? We—we we can do behaviors. you can't change your heart because your heart can be bent away from God. You can be really moral, really nice, really religious, and really independent. Really independent from God. Your heart can also be bent away from God and you can be both really immoral, really notorious, really irreligious. More than likely, if you're anything like me, you're just a mix of both, right? The point is this all of us, every one of us, I don't care if you've been a Christian longer than you can imagine, or you've been at least going to church as long as you can remember, you've done the Sunday school thing, you've got all of your stars on the little chart, you did royal ambassadors, or depending on your age, Awana, and then you, you know, maybe you're, or, 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 this is the first time you've ever been in a place like this. All of us, every one of us, by nature, by nature, are now independent of God. And you cannot fix your independence problem independently. That is why Jesus came. Because you and I couldn't be dependent on God. God came in Jesus to live like we couldn't, perfectly. And then, because we had betrayed God, Jesus bore the weight of that betrayal in our place. That's what the cross is all about, right? That's what forgiveness is. Listen to me. Forgiveness is always the betrayed one bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. Always. Whether you are forgiving somebody for, for uh, calling you a name, forgiving them for, for taking 20 bucks out of your wallet, stealing your car, uh, whatever. It's always you bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. That is what God did in Jesus. And now when we place our faith in Jesus instead of our own abilities, instead of our own methods for self-improvement, or our own ways of finding satisfaction, an exchange happens. His perfect life becomes credited to us, and his sin-bearing death is also credited to us. In other words, we get his perfection, he takes our sin We are restored to God, reconciled to God. It isn't about what we do. It's about trusting in what He did. Which means that at the end of the day, Jesus came and died for lots of different kinds of people. For professors, and politicians, and police, and pushers, and prostitutes, and pedophiles, and everyone in between. He came so that we all might be renewed. So before the walls can be rebuilt out there, the walls in here need to be restored by him. Come to him. But he also came so that the world might be renewed, right? He didn't just come to renew a people, but also a city. The walls of Jerusalem were broken because of sin, certainly, but they're still broken. And what we're going to see in this book, if you're here over the next uh, 11 weeks or so as we look through it, is a concerted effort at renewal of a people, but to build the stinking wall, because the city still needed its structures. And this is why Christianity, friends, does not fit in either a conservative or a liberal framework, because it isn't either individual responsibility or structures and systems. It's something entirely different. Here's why. When you are transformed by the gospel, when suddenly your heart is set free from the feeling like I have to accomplish something before God, when it is set free from I have to find my value in either my identity in a community as opposed to everyone else, or, or my responsible actions, when instead your heart is set free because you know that everything you have is a grace from God, delivered to you by faith in Christ, then you become free to seek the flourishing of others. When you see that God met you in your neediness, apart from any merit on your part, you can seek to help others apart from theirs. When you see that God came and brought you in all all your helplessness into his family by grace, you can, in that security, because... If it's by grace, then you didn't earn it. And if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. And so you can work out of that security to seek to bring others into your family. Now let me speak a little more concretely. If, if you're here for any amount of time, you'll know I, I tend towards abstractions. So let me speak concretely. Being a part of God's program to see this city flourish can happen in little ways every day through your vacation, vacation, see where I'm at. Your vocation, your work, your family, your neighborhood. But listen, if you're going to see the marginal reached in your community, you have to be intentional. You have to move out into the margins. And so Holy Cross is intentionally going to the margins in three areas that I want to invite you to join us in, whether you are a longtime member or first-time visitor. The first is through adoption and foster care. Imagine, just imagine. Imagine what it might be like for every adoptable child in our community to have a home where they can be loved, or every foster family in our, in our community supported and loved well by those around them and not feeling like they're just alone trying to keep their heads above water. What if we could be a part of that? Two, Young Lives. If you're not familiar with Young Lives, it's, it's a ministry um, that works with, with uh, teen moms um, and their babies Imagine if a community came around these girls to support them and love on them and their babies, to help break the cycles of brokenness in their lives that are so common and so difficult to fight against. What if you could be a part of that? And number three, uh, Bessie Weller. <laughs> Bessie is the school where my kids go to, go, go to school. And and it serves some of the poorest neighborhoods in our community. Imagine imagine if early in their experience, every child at that school could know what it's like to believe that they can learn, that education is for them, and that there is an option for them besides pro sports, hip-hop, or hustling. What if? Very soon, very soon, in the next couple of weeks there are going to be some very tangible ways for you to be involved in that, so I want you to keep an eye out. But until then, let me just ask you to imagine with me what it might be like. Let me conclude. The vision of this church, the Holy Cross, is nothing less than the transformation of our community. We believe that the Bible's vision for this basically works like this. Transformed people moving into the world... And applying the gospel to every area, every vocation, every neighborhood. Because Jesus is not a provincial deity. He is the Lord of all who has already defeated the forces of brokenness on the cross. Already done it. And now he calls us to go and enact his reign in our city. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you praise because you are a God who has sought out the flourishing of all people. For you make the rain to fall on on those that follow you and those that don't. You give blessings to those that love you and blessings to many who don't. And so, Lord, we pray that you might work in this church and through this church to raise up a community where we can seek to see the flourishing of this city. Through the multiplication of disciples, churches, and then ultimately through the the transformation of our city structures, Lord, would you do that? To see, especially these three things that we're asking for, for, for the orphan to be brought into families, for cycles of poverty and brokenness to be changed, and for children to be blessed, would you work? As you do it, Lord, we'll give you praise. As you transform us to be agents of transformation in the city. We will give you praise. And we ask that you do all these things in Christ's name. Amen.